In this week's program, in the news, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick with sharp words for George P. Bush over his handling of the Alamo. Also, Democrat candidate calling to burn it all down. And Governor Abbott backs down to local political officials on the issue of masks. In our interview, we're joined by State Senator Bob Hall to talk about the governor's disastrous contact tracing policy and what you can do about it. And Empower Texan CEO Michael Quinn Sullivan reflects on the anniversary of D-Day in this week's comment. Come one, come all to another week of Texas Scorecard Radio. I, of course, am your lovable host, Tony McDonald. You can follow me on social media at TweetTonyMac and find us on the internet at www.texasscorecard.com. Lots of articles going up there uh, on a daily basis, so go check those out at texasscorecard.com. I want to talk about a couple of those stories with Carrie Cheshire, Vice President for Texans for Fiscal Responsibility. Uh, Carrie, you had a couple stories, totally unrelated, but uh, two stories I wanted to talk to you about this week. Uh, Let's get started with the, I think the big one. Uh, You've got Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick out with very pointed criticism of uh, Land Commissioner George P. Bush over his handling of the Alamo. Well, that's right, Tony. You know, kind of over this past weekend, you saw kind of George P. Bush recognize that, oh, there's a little opportunity for me to look good on the Alamo by saying, hey, Antifa, Black Lives Matter protesters, you better not burn it down or deface it or anything like that. Uh, What actually happened was there was a protest of people who were demanding that George P. Bush not tear it down or deface it or anything like that by implementing his uh, so-called Reimagine the Alamo plan. Uh, that would involve moving the cenotaph and making a number of other changes uh, that regular everyday Texans have been pretty frustrated with. Uh, And so there's been an ongoing critique of George P. Bush for uh, kind of his plans on the Alamo, that he's been very non-responsive to everyday citizens about it. The only way that you can have input uh, on the board is uh, ostensibly to write him a $250,000 campaign check. Oh, yeah, Um, I remember hearing about that. And and so there's, there's some ongoing criticism there. Uh, Kyle Biederman, a state representative who's perhaps been the most vocal, was there at the protests and gave his remarks and everything. Uh, Dan Patrick has been the only statewide leader who has uh, kind of joined with people in criticism of George P. Bush over his actions at the Alamo. There's been deafening silence as it relates to uh, you know, Greg Abbott, who is you know the governor of the state of Texas and ostensibly could have a major role in, if not explicitly ordering George P. Bush what to do definitely putting a, a, a lot of public pressure on him. Yeah, and Patrick, um, Patrick's comments, I mean, very pointed, saying, look, you know, you're complaining about these Antifa people, but the real culprit here is, is you, Bush. Yeah, he says explicitly, quote, nobody has put the Alamo more at risk um, than, than you, George P. Bush. It's a very strong critique um, from the lieutenant governor. Yeah, now, not to get into too much inside baseball, but there is a political angle uh, to these actions. Obviously, it's good to see Patrick calling out Bush on this. I think the grassroots say, hey, this is something I can you know, resonate with. But there is a political angle. Oh, that's right, Tony. I mean, there's there's open speculation, uh, pretty validated rumors that George P. Bush is eyeing uh, running for lieutenant governor in the next election. Of course, that is a position that lieutenant governor Dan Patrick holds. Uh, he has not announced if he intends to run for re-election or not, but uh, I think he is uh, interested in criticizing somebody who thinks he wants his job. 
Yeah. And so, I mean, to the point, you know, we had uh, uh, Representative Biederman on the program uh, last week and to talk about this issue and, you know, okay, you're criticizing, criticizing Bush, but to your point, there's deafening silence uh, from Governor Abbott. And certainly you kind of ask yourself, well, where is the criticism of Governor Abbott and his, you know, essentially hiding from the issue uh, that he's done? That's right, Tony. I mean, you know, you kind of continue to see Abbott, uh, you know, kind of when he's able to, like, kind of wheel himself into the limelight. And when he uh, isn't comfortable, he continues to hide um, from everyday Texans. Uh, I think most people would be encouraged if the governor would come out and stand firm in the, his defense of the Shrine of Texas Liberty. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, he has yet to do something like that. Yeah. Now, switching gears entirely, another story that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, we've got these Democrats that are in a runoff running for office here in Texas. One of them just outright coming out and basically saying, hey, look, you know, burn it down, join the Antifa, uh, burn it all down. I mean, it's just complete nutso stuff. Uh, coming from the Democrats in this state. That's right, Tony. Quote, if people loot, so what? Burn it down to the ground. Those are the words of Kim Olson, a Democrat candidate for Congress. Uh, it's actually interesting. Uh, she's in a runoff, and maybe Texas Democrats up in North Texas will choose someone even crazier than her uh, to, to be their nominee uh, there. Who exactly knows? Uh, but that's what she said in a kind of Zoom conference call with Democrat Party activists as she is campaigning for their votes. And the crazy and wild thing is you actually kind of like maybe see something flash across her face where she maybe kind of recognizes that's a crazy thing to say. But then she just doubles down and that, that, is, that is my position. This is what I need to do to appeal to Texas Democrat voters. And this is what I'm gonna go with. Just yeah. absolutely wild. You almost contrast these stories. You see you know, lack of leadership, and, and a lack of an ability to necessarily call out the lack of leadership on the Republican side, lack of results from Republican leaders on the Republican side. And then you're reminded, oh, yeah, and the Democrats are absolutely insane. Well, yeah, and it's frustrating because their politicians are absolutely responsive to them, right? So, like, conservative voters have mainstream normal things like, hey, you know, I don't think that I ought to have a permit from the government to be able to carry a firearm. I don't think that we should subsidize illegal aliens in our schools. I don't think we should tear down the Alamo. I don't think we should tear down the Alamo. And, you know, I think taxes are too high. And Republican leadership says, no, we're not going to listen to you. Those are crazy and radical ideas. Meanwhile, some extreme leftist Democrat voters say, literally, we should, you know, burn things down and defund the police. And Democrat politicians say, we're right there with you. Just... <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, appreciate you uh, uh, keeping an eye on these things, Gary, and, and coming on sharing a little bit with us. Absolutely. Thanks, Tony. Next, let's turn to Jacob Asmussen with the Central Texas Bureau. Uh, Jacob, local officials in, in Central Texas and across the state, uh, these mayors and, and county judges demanding more flexibility to mandate masks, uh, demanding that from Governor Abbott, uh, and then now starting to take some unilateral action. Why don't you tell us about what's going on there? Yeah, so the quick recap, Tony, in March and April, you see a lot of these cities and counties across the state, including Central Texas, issue these decrees saying um, if citizens don't wear masks in public, um, they could be fined up to $1,000 and even thrown in jail for up to six months. Okay, so, so they issue these orders. Governor Abbott eventually 
stopped them and said, hey, you can't imprison uh, unmasked citizens. Oh, or, uh, fine, now, or fine people. You know, basically his order saying, look, we're preempting all that. You can't mandate masks. I mean, tell people to wear masks, but you can't punish them. Right. And then we're seeing uh, yesterday uh, or Monday, rather, you're seeing Austin Mayor Steve Adler, uh, lots of local officials across the state lamenting, upset about the fact that they can't imprison and fine people. So they actually sent a formal request back to the governor saying, hey, let us do this. And now we're seeing uh, the governor is going to allow them. Yeah. So tell us about why there's a couple policies being implemented already uh, so far in Bear County and apparently in Travis County. Tell us what they're trying to do. And then we'll talk about how the governor has been reacting so far. Right. So the Bear County judge issues this order, says, OK, well, uh, we won't fine or imprison citizens who don't wear masks, but we will require businesses to institute policies uh, saying you uh, customers can only come in if they have masks on. And, and, then they, and then, of course, fine the businesses if they do that. Right, right. And apparently um, that is what worked with the governor. Um, the yeah. governor <laughs> responding today saying, hey, you know what, that's actually okay. You can do that to businesses, even though you can't do it to individual citizens. Yeah, it's so obnoxious. He basically says, oh, well, well Judge Wolf has figured it out as if, you know, his executive order is a riddle to be cracked by these Democrat local officials. They've figured out the riddle of the order, and this is how you can impose masks and get the approval of the governor. Right, right. And you know what's really most frustrating about this, Tony? Let's take a step back for a second and look at the overall situation across the state. As over 100,000 Austinites alone have lost their jobs because of government shutdowns, and millions of Texans are now out of work and potentially facing a crisis of being able to afford food and a place to live, this is what local officials are upset about. They want the power to fine and imprison citizens who don't wear masks. That's what they're concerned about. Yeah. Tell us real quick what they're doing in Travis County. This may be something we don't know yet whether the governor will approve of it. Well, yeah, Tony, earlier this week, Travis County Commissioner's Court unanimously uh, voted to make it trespassing if a citizen goes onto a, a county facility without a mask on. And yeah. so we've yet to hear about um, the governor's response to that. But you're seeing these local officials institute these, these mask punishments um, in any way that they can. Yeah, well, we'll have to see what the what he does, and certainly, I think uh, folks need to be contacting the governor's office, expressing their frustration uh, with this backpedaling that we're currently seeing. Thanks for uh, reporting on that, Jacob. Thanks, Tony. Texas Scorecard Radio is a project of Empower Texans. At TexasScorecard.com or EmpowerTexans.com, you can find more news and daily updates from all around the Lone Star State. You can also find updates from Empower Texans and Texas Scorecard on Facebook and Twitter and follow Empower Texans on Instagram. Texas Scorecard's News Digest goes out weekly via email with occasional updates throughout the week. Subscribe online and find more information at EmpowerTexans.com. Someone's always keeping score. We think it ought to be the taxpayers. Well, for a few weeks now, we've been talking on the program about this uh, completely insane contract, this $300 million contract that the governor has issued for contact tracing. And uh, 
excited this week to have on the man who's doing more than anyone else, at least from my perspective, in the legislature to fight back against this contract, State Senator Bob Hall. Senator, thank you uh, for joining us. Well, Tony, thank you for having me on. I appreciate what you guys do, and I appreciate your interest in this subject and what you're doing to help bring it to the, to the attention of people as their liberties are about to be trampled. Yeah, so this is a serious issue, and, and it does involve uh, the liberties of, of all Texans. Uh, tell people who are listening, some people may have heard a little bit about this, that there's this big contract uh, from the government that was issued for contact tracing. Tell people what's going on, a kind of big picture, and then we can dive into what's wrong with it. Okay. Uh, well, let me let me start by saying that, that my concern comes from the fact there's never a right time or a right way to do the wrong thing. And contact tracing at this point in time on this concern is absolutely the wrong thing to be doing. We've been doing contract tracing since the early 1900s when we used it to find typhoid Mary, but it is applicable when you have something like Ebola, TB, HIV, something that is very deadly and moves very slowly. Those are the two criteria for it. COVID-19 meets neither one of those criteria. It almost would have made a little bit of sense had we started this back at the first part of the year when we first learned about it. But now that it has been here for almost six, six months or more and is spread throughout the, the state, with people we can't even identify that have it, it's called asymptomatic, it technically makes no sense at all to do it. We're in deep trouble financially in the state with the price of oil being down and the shutdown of businesses. Uh, the, the federal government doesn't have the money. We don't have the money in the state, and the people sure don't have the money, so it's financially wrong to do it. And the whole idea of tracking and tracing people and forcing them to tell you about where they've been and who they've been with and what they've been doing is just morally wrong to do. So, yeah, so, so it's wrong on three counts. Yeah, so technically, financially, and morally wrong. Let's kind of maybe move through those points. Back to the technically wrong issue. Uh, we were talking before the before the interview, and I learned something that I didn't know. The, the, this is going to require a vast army of people. Uh, to attempt to do something, and I think your point is that really probably can't be done, uh, but even if it's attempted to be done, uh, this is going to be a massive operation. Oh, massive is, is, is not a word big enough to describe it. We've already issued contracts, uh, probably in somewhere in the order of eight or nine huge 10, 11, $8 million contracts to the various universities, uh, to other organizations, and we are expecting, or when I say we, I say that because I'm part of the government. I, I'm not doing this. I've had nothing to do with it, and it's been done without legislative uh, advice and consent. Uh, but the government is expecting local governments, counties and cities, to man up large numbers of people to support locally what's going to be required in contacting this huge number of people and managing all of this information. Uh, we would be better off improving our testing that we're doing and, and accelerating getting the answers back when we do do the testing. And, and also, 
using that information to undo all of the misinformation that the government has put out there that has the population absolutely scared to death over something that is unnecessary for them to be scared to death over based on what we now know. Yeah, and I mean, we call when we're constantly learning new information and, and constantly seeing that uh, things we were told in the early days uh, just were flat out false. I mean, it, initially we were told, well, don't wear a mask. Well, now you should wear a mask. And, you know, people were saying, well, it's asymptomatic transmission. Well, now, okay, maybe that really doesn't happen very often. Uh, very interesting what, uh, the, to your point, there's been so much disinformation put out. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we were led to believe that this was a homogeneous attack on all people. It didn't matter what your health was, your age was, your race, sex. It was going to affect everybody. And if you got it, you were going to die. That was the initial message we got. It was designed to absolutely scare people into accepting anything that the government decided it want to for, wanted to force the people to do. And it worked. But now we know, now that we're six months into this thing, we know that 80% of the deaths have been of people age 60 and over. And, and of those, it is those people that have underlying problems like diabetes, uh, uh, hypertension, obesity, or some other disease that has their immune system down. And we've got in Texas over 50%, and it could be as high as 60 or 65% of those that have died <coughs> in Texas or in nursing homes in, uh, or the equivalent of a nursing home in there. And our folks that are under 20, less than 1% are affected by it. And yeah. so we, we can have a different lifestyle. And what we need to be doing is addressing this by informing people where, what the risk is and, and who is at risk. Do you have diabetes? Are you, are you overweight? Do you have lung problems? Have you, and do you have COPD? Do you have these things? If they are, then you are one who needs to take extra precaution and stay at home. But, but instead, we keep leading people to believe if you stick your head out of the house, you're going to get COVID. And if you get COVID, you're going to die. And it's just not true. And right. tracking it is not. And you mentioned something about asymptomatic people. It's back the other way now, Tony. Uh, we, they're now saying they, they don't really know, but that, uh, that, but, uh, asymptomatic people could very well be spreading this. So that being the case, if all you're identifying with this tracking, and that's all you can do is those that test positive, you probably have 10 to 20 other people out there that don't even know they have it that are out spreading it around, uh, that, that you have no, no idea about what it is. So from that standpoint is another piece of technically makes no sense to focus on one little piece of this thing. It's kind of like trying to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic rather than trying to plug the hole in the side of the ship. Well, we're doing a lot of work of rearranging deck chairs on the, on the Titanic and spending a lot of money doing it. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the money side of it, the financial side of it. Obviously, look, we're headed into a, a we're part in a, a serious economic downturn uh, because of these shutdowns to the economy. And as you mentioned, the price of oil's down, uh, sales tax revenues are down. The state can ill afford to drop you know hundreds of millions of dollars on a project that isn't going to accomplish something. Uh, but but on that same point, I'm very concerned about how did this contract get completed so quickly with this company that, you know, no one had ever heard of before, the, before it was in the news, this MTX 
uh, group. Um, how in the world is it, it reeks of some kind of corruption, some kind of special deal, uh, some kind of, you know, brother-in-law contract. Basically, somebody had to have known someone to get this thing through so quickly. It's very bizarre. Tony, uh, you're absolutely right. You know, and one thing is my background, my hist- my business I had that before I got into politics was we're dealing and working with large government contracts, uh, knowing, and that's what we did for 25 years. I had never, ever in, in that 25 years saw a, a multi-million dollar contract of this magnitude, much like $300 million contract that went from concept of we need to do the job to a contract award in less than a week. Uh, that's just not possible to do a reasonable job in in writing the proposal, in evaluating what people submit, uh, getting their backgrounds checked, and going through all the things that you do to make sure that you are responsibly spending taxpayer money. It was not possible to do that in in that that period of time. I'll just tell you it. Uh, it had to be preconceived of where they were going and what they were going to do because there was just not time to do that. And in the aftermath of it, we see that they didn't didn't vet this company. I mean, you're talking about giving this contract a $300 million contract to a company that had less than 200 employees and 175 of those were in India to do something that no one had ever done before is on the scope that this is talked about doing this company had not done this. What they had done is they had taken on similar contracts with 16 other states. Now you take and multiply 16 states times the manpower of what we're talking about them doing here in Texas and the job they're doing. And you're talking about a hiring challenge that in a month they have to increase their personnel 38,000%. Think about that. Wow. Uh, it's not just not possible to do that. Uh, and, and the question I'd ask is how in the world do we know that this company is not going to be doing, doing the job one time and charging 16 states for it because they're doing training. They're, 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 that's, that's one element of they're doing and the, and the way they operate the data. I don't even know how they're going to begin to separate it besides just being done by an agency <laughs> in the government that has driven more legislation to be passed because of their incompetence, ineptness, <coughs> and mishandling of previous contracts. We passed bills in 15, 17, and I think we had one in 19, trying to plug the holes of the screw-ups that uh, our Health and Human Services Department had in mismanaging billions of dollars in contracts, billions of dollars. And all of that was waived. All of those safeguards we put in in those, that piece of the legislation were all magically waived, and the contract was awarded to a company that nobody had ever heard of, had never done this job before, and with just a little bit of scratching, finds that it has multiple contracts out there that it has failed to perform on. Yeah, wow. It, so it's, I, don't, I don't know what else there is to say. Yeah, it. It, 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 it really stinks. <laughs> you know, it's, it's got a very bad smell to it. And, and I think if, if there's more digging, we'll find out where that smell is coming from. Uh, we're running out of time, but tell listeners who are, um, you know, troubled by what's going on here, how do they get involved? What can they be doing 
to help in the fight against this corrupt contract and this and this morally questionable contact tracing scheme in general, what can they be doing? I mean, should they call their legislators? Should they call the governor? What should they be doing? Really, it's uh, it's it's a a multifaceted thing that can be done. Yes, while the legislature is totally impotent right now, uh, everything has been decided in the governor's office. Uh, but your legislators need to know how you feel about this so when they can support this when the time is right. So definitely include your legislator. But you also need to let the governor's office know how you feel about it. And then also your local elected officials, your city council members, your mayor, your county judge, and your uh, commissioners. Those, those organizations, states, or counties, and cities are going to have to be They are in the plan to be a part of this. We have counties right now already who have passed resolutions saying, not us. We are not going to participate in it. We don't have the money. And if we had the money, we know it's morally wrong to do it, and we're not going to do this. You need to get those, those who know their commissioners, their city councilmen, mayors, and judges, get, sit with them, talk with them, and get them to pass a resolution refusing to support this program. Yeah, I that, think that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a package deal. That's powerful advice, good advice for, for ways that folks can be involved. Thank you, Senator Hall, for everything you're doing to lead the fight uh, on this issue, and, uh, and uh, you know, Godspeed on that. Well, thank you very much for having me on, and uh, keep talking about it. Hi, this is Kerry Cheshire, Vice President of Texans for Fiscal Responsibility. The 2020 election will be here before we know it, and with every election comes candidates that need to be vetted and tested before we can entrust them with our vote. At TFR, we take that vetting process seriously. Any candidate seeking our endorsement must first fill out a comprehensive questionnaire, then sit for an interview with our staff. We then seek input from each candidate's would-be constituents before making a decision. To find out more about our endorsement process and view which candidates have made the cut, Visit EmpowerTexans.com slash endorsements. Well, this month, of course, is the anniversary of D-Day. Empower Texans CEO Michael Quinn Sullivan reflects on the sacrifice of thousands of Americans in this week's Texas Scorecard Radio Commentary. Fields of perfectly placed markers in the neatly trimmed grass of the cemetery above Omaha Beach in Normandy, France, is one of the most deeply emotional places I've visited on Earth. Your eyes can see, but your mind refuses to entirely process the enormity of the sacrifices made by so many Americans during World War II's Operation Overlord. With this week's Texas Scorecard Radio Commentary, I'm Michael Quinn Sullivan. Year after year, appropriate ceremonies pay tribute to the sacrifice and heroism of the men buried there. Yet, for all the perfect words, none can match the silent statement of the thousands who died on that day of days in 1944. The Normandy American Cemetery is the final resting place of 9,380 Americans, young men who answered the call of their nation in the fight against tyranny. They fought and died on foreign soil in hopes that the war would end there rather than reaching our shores. Each of these men died on June 6, 1944, or in the days immediately following. The names of an additional 1,500 etched into the walls of the missing are a reminder that war is never a neat and antiseptic affair. 
So much has been said and written about these men, these bands of brothers, whose actions and sacrifices liberated Europe, and yet it seems one can never say enough. The valor, the heroism, the bravery, the dignity, it all defies language. It's also deeply personal for so many. My dad's dad was a B-17 Flying Fortress tail gunner in the European theater. Like so many others, he had lied about his age to enlist with his brothers in the early days of World War II. From the small West Texas town of Seminole, O.W. Sullivan Jr. survived being shot down behind enemy lines and eventually returned home to start a family and life after the war's conclusion. Yet, many in his generation did not. For many of them, the beaches and fields of Europe were their final resting place. They fought so that we would be free. They each answered the call of our nation, but they died for their friends on the line and their family at home. They perfectly and nobly embodied the words of Jesus found in John fifteen thirteen: Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. To them... To their memory, we can only say thank you, and we cannot say it enough. I'm Michael Quinn Sullivan with this week's Texas Scorecard Radio Commentary. Well, that's all I have for you this week. Thank you for listening. Join us back here next week for another episode of Texas Scorecard Radio. Texas Scorecard Radio is brought to you each week as a public service from the Empower Texans Foundation and in partnership with the Lincoln Institute and this station. You can download podcasts from each program and learn more at EmpowerTexans.com.